Hello, my Rebels, I have a question for you. Um, do the rule makers for all this social distancing and house arrest and lockdown, do the rule makers get to be rule breakers? Do they get to go out and party and travel around? Well, in Canada they do. I'll show you the story of Justin Trudeau breaking his own rules mere minutes after he says them and the media's response. By the way, I'd like to invite you to become a Rebel News Plus subscriber. It's eight bucks a month to get the video version of this podcast, which I think is pretty helpful, especially when I show you images of Trudeau partying. Just go to rebelnews.com and sign up there. Okay, here's the podcast. Tonight, why don't the social distancing rules apply to Justin Trudeau? It's April 14th and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. I understand social distancing, standing six feet away from the next person in public. It's what you have to do when you don't have masks. And Canada doesn't have masks because Trudeau shipped our masks to China in February in some weird submissive attempt to get those bullies to like him. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, it didn't work. You can find some masks out there if you look long enough. I finally found a handful of masks at a convenience store yesterday Two bucks each for the flimsiest made-in-China kind. I prefer the made-in-Taiwan kind, but I can't get any. As we've shown you in other shows, Taiwan is a liberal democracy. They're worried about China, and they don't trust the World Health Organization, so they have to rely on themselves, particularly when it comes to protecting themselves from China viruses. So they built up a huge domestic mask-making infrastructure in January and February. I think they're up to... 15 million masks a day, and they don't export any. They keep it for the Taiwanese people. It's amazing, seriously, they're making half a billion masks a month now. That's why they're safe, that's why they're not on a lockdown. And in a relatively small, relatively crowded country with a very crowded capital city, Taipei, you can't social distance six feet in every direction, but you don't need to if everyone's wearing masks. That's the whole point of a mask. It stops what Pee Wee Herman used to talk about. Say it, don't spray it, Captain Carl! You don't really spit more than six feet when you talk. A mask lets you get closer. This is what we're being advised to do in Canada instead. Six feet in every direction because we have no masks. God, they must be laughing at us. Uh, maybe if Trudeau wasn't such a suck-up to the communist Chinese, Taiwan would be sending us gifts of a million masks at a time. And I mean high-quality, sterile, Taiwan-made quality masks that you can rely on, not made in China junk. Alas, China, Canada doesn't have much time for Taiwan because China is Trudeau's favorite country, you see. There's a level of, of uh, admiration I actually have for China. Um, because they're... You know, basic dictatorship. So we have no masks, which led to the bizarre spectacle of Theresa Tam, who, by the way, actually sits on the World Health Organization's senior committee. Did you know that? She literally works for the World Health Organization right now. So that leads her to say bizarre things like, don't wear masks, masks don't work, masks are dangerous. 
masks um, have to be utilized appropriately too. Most people haven't learned how to use masks. So there's many practical aspects of this. So our advice right now is there is no need to use a mask for well people. Yeah, no thanks. Hey, did you see Alberta's Jason Kenney yesterday tell the CBC that, yeah, Teresa Tam is a very nice lady, but we're sort of not going to listen to her anymore. You know, this is the same Dr. Tam who is telling us that we shouldn't close our borders uh, to countries with high levels of infection and who in January was repeating uh, talking points um, out of the PRC about the no evidence of human to human transmission. So we'll look at all of the body of evidence that's out there when it comes to these things. Right on. Imagine waiting for Justin Trudeau and his World Health Organization bureaucrats before using tests that the FDA and the European Union are using right now. Uh, <laughs> did you see Jason Kenny? Look at this. Did you see Jason Kenny use the word China or Chinese or Hong Kong or Beijing or race in his answer there on CBC? No, of course not. But this McLean's Magazine uh, editor, Scott Gilmore, sure did. He's a writer for McLean's. He also happens to be Catherine McKenna's house husband. He called Jason Kenny racist for not wanting to wait a few more weeks or months for a proper virus test that Trudeau approves. Yeah, I'm not sure if that slur calling everyone racist works anymore. I mean, once you've called borders racist and masks racist, I think most people sort of tune you out. But back to the fool on the hill, Justin Trudeau, still in vacation mode. He hid it out in his house for a month, even though he didn't have the virus, a month. And our submissive media simply didn't call him out for it. In fact, there was a moment a week or two ago when a reporter actually asked Justin Trudeau how he was coping, how he was holding up, how he could maintain such a pace. I kid you not. Yeah, secondly, um, you're speaking to us every day. The Deputy Prime Minister is either having meetings or speaking to us. Dr. Tam is speaking to us virtually every day. What are you guys doing to prevent burnout? I mean, there's no way you can continue at this pace. Are, are you drawing up some sort of rotor? Seriously, the laziest man in Ottawa works 30 minutes a day, watches Netflix, and hits the bong for the rest. And the media are asking him if he's doing all right. Can they bring him anything? Anyways, last week he gave a lecture to Canadians who were basically under house arrest. You go to a walk for your dog, get a ticket. A dad out rollerblading with his kids, get a ticket. And I'm talking about eight, $900 fines or more. So we're all under house arrest. And most of us aren't living in a 22-room mansion like Trudeau is, uh, and his wife and kids living in the government's official country cottage called Harrington Lake. So Trudeau goes on TV and tells us, don't go outside, don't go to the park, don't travel, don't visit other households, just stay put. Go home and stay home. This is what we all need to be doing. And we're going to make sure this happens, whether by educating people more on the risks, or by enforcing the rules, if that's needed. So he told us that, and then he immediately, I mean literally minutes later, broke all those rules himself. He just did. He, he left his property in Ottawa. He crossed into Quebec and went into Gatineau Park, where that Harrington Lake country home is, which is a violation of a Quebec provincial order against going there, because it's in a park. He mixed his household with his wife's household, and just to make sure you saw... Sophie Trudeau posted four pictures of it to Instagram, just making sure you could see her and her glamorous lifestyle. One, two, three government homes they have, traveling whenever she pleases. I mean, remember, she flew to London, England. She got the virus there. She gave it to Idris Elba, the British sex symbol. She flew back to Canada. Her husband 
just broke rules to go see her again. And she wants to let you know you can't hold her down. Even Trudeau himself had the sense not to tweet those photos. But Sophie Trudeau, in every way more vain and selfish than her husband, if you can even believe that, how is that even possible? She just had to make you know that the rules apply to the little people, not her, dear. Now, I happen to think the rules are being overdone. I sympathize with people who are chafing under house arrest. I am too. But we're not the people making the rules. Trudeau is a rule maker, and yet he and his family boast about being rule breakers. That's happening a lot, actually. Uh, The public health officer in Scotland did the same. She told people to stay at home, don't go to parties, don't travel. But then she went out to party. But unlike Trudeau and his ilk, at least she apologized and resigned. I've already issued a statement this morning apologizing unreservedly for traveling away from my home while restrictions were in place. As well as this weekend, it's important to be clear that I also was there last weekend with my husband. I did not follow the advice I'm giving to others. I'm truly sorry for that. I've seen a lot of the comments from members of the public on Twitter today, people calling me a hypocrite, people telling me about the hardships they've endured while following my guidance. My office has also received emails from members of the public who are making clear to me their disappointment and unhappiness at what I've done. People have told me that I'm irresponsible, that I've behaved as if my advice does not apply to me. I want people to know that I have seen all of that and I've heard the comments. What I did was wrong. I'm very sorry. It will not happen again. Same thing with a senior politician in New Zealand but not Trudeau. In fact, when a handful of journalists criticized Trudeau for partying in Quebec and then going back to Ottawa, well, the media jumped to his defense. Here's a comment that our friend Candace Malcolm made about Trudeau's hypocrisy. And oh my God, would you look at this government journalist after government journalist, and by that I mean those taking Trudeau's bailout money, jumping to Trudeau's defense like white knights aiding a damsel in distress. They love being Trudeau's errand boy. They know the rules don't apply to Trudeau. They never do. And they're fine with that as long as they can be in his royal court, even as jesters. Yeah, no, not Candace Malcolm and not us and not a handful of independent journalists who were left, but there really is only a handful of us left, isn't there? Stay with us for more. Well, the whole world has been distracted, that's an understatement, by the pandemic pandemonium and panic. A lot of other things have been pushed aside or delayed, including the Conservative Party of Canada's leadership race to find a successor for Andrew Scheer, who, by the way, continues to stay on at Stornoway and continues to take the leader of the opposition's salary. I suppose someone has to, if it weren't him, it would fall to someone else. Um, But in this strange interregnum, we don't know exactly when the Conservative Party will choose its new leader, the party elders have decided to put on a sideshow. And we've talked about this before. As you know, we've interviewed a number of the leadership candidates. Uh, I have myself, so is Kean Bexty. Oddly enough, Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay have not kept their promise to meet with us. I'm sure that'll change. 
But one fellow we've talked to a couple times is Jim Karahelios. Uh, he's known as a carbon tax crusader. That's how I first came to know him and the Ontario provincial scene. His wife, in fact, is an MPP under Ontario Premier Doug Ford. And Jim, he's always been a bit of a conservative gadfly, but in a, in a good way. I mean, maybe it's because it takes one to know one, and we're troublemakers here too. So when Karahelios threw his hat into the ring, I was happy to interview him, and I did. Um, to my, I'm not gonna say my shock, but to my disappointment, Despite the fact that Karahelios received the thousands of signatures from party members necessary and raised the $300,000 necessary to pay the entry fee, he was kicked out of the race for being mean to another candidate, Aaron O'Toole. And whether or not it was true that was, he was mean, how on earth is that cause to kick him out? Isn't that cause for Aaron O'Toole to fight back? Isn't that cause for party members to choose whether or not to vote for Karahelios? Well, the party kicked him out and he sued. The party went to court to have his lawsuit thrown out and Jim Karahelios won. And Jim joins us now via Skype. Jim, I have to tell you, we're talking so much. We're not talking about policy issues. We're not talking about beating Justin Trudeau. We're talking about this bizarre internal warfare that the lame duck rump of the Conservative Party bureaucracy has declared on you. I have to tell you, I'm not interested in this subject by choice. I'm interested only because these fools have decided to make this their news story of the summer, their, their vendetta against you. I have not endorsed you. I, I like the cut of your jib, to be honest. But whether or not you should be the Tory leader, to me, falls to party members, not to some cabal who wanted to disqualify you. I'm angry. Well, uh, a lot of people are angry, Ezra. And, uh, you know, it does impact policy because you're it's pretty clear that if you're a conservative and you want to run in the conservative party, you can do so unless you want to win. And that's not allowed if you're a conservative and you're trying to win. And when I campaign, you know, uh, I campaign kind of like a Brahma bull. I try to win. And uh, uh, when they come up with arguments and they want to uh, be hard on other candidates, the establishment red Tories, that's supposed to be acceptable. But when they get it back, uh, they don't seem to like it. And they call it mean. They call it nasty. Uh, the communication that this entire fiasco is centered around was actually quite benign. I just quoted uh, Aaron O'Toole's campaign chair uh, from an article in the Globe and Mail. Uh, I took his words, I didn't make up the words, uh, and they kind of blew a gasket over it. And uh, it was very disappointing, I think, to see, you know, it's one thing if you disqualify someone at the start of a race. And that's, uh, you know, I think you'd agree that's inappropriate. Um, but to do it after I raise the $300,000 and have thousands of people across Canada supporting me, uh, I was surprised. Uh, even during this entire two-week investigation that was going on, I was muzzled. I wasn't able to talk about the investigation after O'Toole's campaign filed the complaint, so they muzzled me. Uh, I never thought that they would go to the step of removing me from the race 
uh, after I had raised the three hundred thousand dollars, three thousand signatures, and I was the third candidate uh, out of the seven or eight that were in the race back then to get the three hundred thousand um, dollars. So it's surprising, but the message is clear. Like you know, you can run as a conservative candidate, you can talk about policies as long as you don't try to win. Uh, it's allowed. You know, if you want to try to finish last, maybe we'll put up with you, but don't try to win. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can't handle that in the Conservative Party of Canada these days. At least the establishment red Tories uh, really don't like that. You know, I mean, I, I first really heard of you. I mean, I'm an Alberta boy originally, so I'm fairly new to the Ontario PC party. And I know that you had similar battles with them uh, and their palace guard around their former leader, Patrick Brown. And by the way, his Svengali... Walid Solomon is now the campaign chairman of Aaron O'Toole, and he is the person that was the subject of your criticism in that in that email. I saw that email, and you criticized Walid Solomon for supporting Sharia finance. I think that's a perfectly legit criticism. It was a, it's in the public domain. Uh, you cited other points of view. I mean, I whether or not that's important for Conservative Party voters is up to them. It just seemed there were so many layers here. The fact that there's certain things you're not allowed to talk about or certain people you're not allowed to criticize, even inappropriately. I mean, if you're being inappropriate, that's for voters to judge. It just is so odd. But the thing that strikes me, and I was just saying this uh, to our producer before I came in the room here, is I've seen this movie before. You fought this same fight with the Ontario PCs. They took you to court and they lost. It looks like the federal conservatives want another piece of that action, and I don't understand why. Um, that's a good question. I mean, Patrick Brown is supporting Peter McKay. He's on his team. Uh, Wally Solomon's on Aaron's team. And, you know, Ezra, you were one of the first to uh, have me for an interview in 2017 when Walid and Patrick Brown thought it was a good idea to sue me to shut down the Axe the Carbon Tax campaign and another campaign on vote rigging. They thought that was a really good political move for the party and for conservatism in Ontario. And uh, they thought I'd roll over in court and walk away from the party forever. Uh, we fought back and we won when a judge threw it out as an anti-slap. Uh, slap being it was strategic litigation against public participation. It was designed to shut me up. And so when I'm running for leader and I see Patrick Brown on Peter McKay's team and Walid Solomon, campaign chair for Aaron O'Toole, who was the campaign chair for Patrick Brown, I point out the fact that this is the way these guys think that conservative parties should be run. So if a member speaks out or campaigns against a certain idea, they think that they're entitled uh, to bring hellfire and brimstone on them and the wrath of the party apparatus. Uh, and I talk about that. And I also talk about when you're in a leadership race, you talk about the views of the candidates and their high profile people running their campaigns. Yeah. So well, uh, here's the thing, you're talking about Aaron O'Toole and his uh, chairman, Walid Solomon. And Walid Solomon's right. a bit litigious. I know he's been slapping people uh, with lawsuits. Thank you, Ezra. Um, Thank you, Ezra. Well, I mean, he is. And that's, you know, you well, can I get, I get called that by the mainstream media, and they don't like to talk about the fact that Waleed loves to threaten lawsuits on uh, whoever uh, Listen, says he's a anything. Lawyer. It's his stock in trade. I mean, we, we have lawsuits here, too. It's sometimes something that's necessary. 
But if you're in a political campaign, I mean, here's, here's what gets me. If Waleed really has a defamation case against you, he should see you in defamation. But since he's part of a campaign team, maybe he should grow a thicker skin because if you're gonna sue everyone who attacks you in politics, that's all you'll be doing. And, and when Justin Trudeau or the CBC or, or anyone else or the Globe and Mail editorial board says something really, really mean and unfair about you in a campaign, you gotta push on and you gotta come up with a witty comeback or you've gotta ignore it or you've gotta come up with a campaign ad that makes people sympathetic to you. The idea that you can shut down criticism when you've entered the big arena, when you said, I want to be the gladiator that'll defeat them all, I want to beat Justin Trudeau, I got the stuff, and then someone writes an email about you and you go crying to mummy, that's very weird to me. But fine, you right. can write that off as a character flaw or a, or a miscalculation by Solomon or Aaron O'Toole. And that's fine, I don't care. But for the party itself to say, we agree, we must disqualify a candidate over this quarrel and then fight him in court, that's what's crazy. Like if Aaron O'Toole and Waleed Solomon want to sue and complain and whine their way through this, maybe it'll work, I don't know. It seems a little thin-skinned and it seems like they're hunting rabbit tracks instead of going after big game. Frankly, they should be attacking Justin Trudeau. They've made their choice, but the party has chosen to quarrel, to take their side in the quarrel and to take it to public court and make a public spectacle and burn up party money on this. Who the heck is running that place? Is this Andrew Schiff's well, doing or is this someone else? Well, uh, I have no idea what the current leader's involvement is in the race. I'm sure he'll probably tell you he's not involved at all. But by my count, it's about 11 individuals uh, on the LEOC and the CRO, uh, who now, are what somewhat... Is, what is, uh, like LEOC, what's that, leadership? Uh, yeah, so. sorry. The, there's, so National Council is the elected board of our party, and it, and it appointed 20 people, I believe, on a leadership election organizing committee to run this race. And it was chaired by Lisa Raitt uh, and Dan Nolan. Um, Lisa Raitt, obviously, people know her. She was a uh, MP, she was front and center with Peter McKay for Andrew's entire campaign. She was put in charge of this as a co-chair of the campaign. And then they uh, uh, named a chief returning officer to run the election. Uh, individual who's been a government staffer before when the Conservative Party was in uh, power, Derek Vanstone. And they're in charge of running the rules. But I guess they've decided in their grand wisdom that enforcing the rules is telling candidates what they are allowed to talk about, even if the statement I made. So here's the key point, Ezra. They try to make me sound like the maverick or the renegade. But every position I take is 100 percent on side with party policy. Well, right that's actually policy. not that's actually not the key point, Jim, because you can be you have the right to be wacky. You have the well, right. That's to be right. wrong, I mean, Michael Chong, who ran in the last leadership, loved the carbon tax, was really weird on a lot of issues, including right. electoral reform. Frankly, he's a, he's a liberal, but okay, you want to run in the Conservative Party? That's sort of neat, I guess. Make, proves it's a big tent, brings some more people, brings some excitement. I mean, Michael Chong is not a conservative, 
in my right. books, but who am I to tell him he can't run? Let the people right. choose. I sort of like the fact that he run, even though I, I'm glad he didn't win. And, and the key point, Jim, is not that you were on party policy. The key point is, even if you weren't, why on earth would you disqualify someone for coloring outside the lines? It's such a small pool of candidates to begin with. I think there's only, is there only three other candidates who have qualified, if I'm not mistaken, Leslin Lewis and, uh, and Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay, is that it? And Derek Sloan. And Derek Sloan, thank you. So, so, it's, all, so it's, a, it's a very small pool. Right. Why on earth would you winnow it down? And if you're so bloody sure that Jim Carahelios is um, unacceptable, then why are you not sure enough to let the, the party members make that choice? I don't get this, and I think I'm repeating myself, and I'm talking more than you, too, which shows how mad I am about this. Let me get to some facts. I see that because the attempt of the party to throw your lawsuit out failed, this matter will actually be proceeding to trial on May 15th. Is that accurate? That's right. So they brought in a motion to um, do a couple things. One of them was just to strike it right out of court, and it failed. So uh, the judge came back and, and set a date, May 15th. And it's an expedited process with full powers for the judge uh, to um, go through all of the uh, fact-finding uh, things that he uh, that he will deem necessary to figure out if I broke the rules, did they follow their own rules, uh, and was my disqualification valid? And then the second point I think we talked about before, Ezra, is not only did they disqualify me, they wanted to hold on to over $300,000 in donations. So I raised $330,000 in donations in a few weeks, $200,000 of that was a buy-in, $100,000 was supposed to be a deposit, and then everything over $300,000 was supposed to come back to my campaign to pay expenses. Party staff specifically told me, you know, you can use that deposit, that $100,000 later on when we send it back to you, to pay for outstanding expenses. So they cut me off from raising money a few days before the 25th, and they've held on to the $330,000, and according to the law, I have no ability to pay for those debts because I can't pay for it uh, out of my own pocket or get one uh, one donor or a few donors to pay for it because we have caps on contributions. Every every dollar you spend in the campaign has to come from individual contributions. So they they really leveled like the full weight of their authority here. They they I, I'm losing the word here, Ezra, but you, you know you could fill it in for me. They're they going to get smacked so hard by this punish. judge. That's the crazy thing. I mean. The courts, because of the virus, have basically shut down. Uh, right. So many trials have been canceled or delayed. It's only emergency matters, serious right. crimes. In fact, some prisoners are even being let out of prison. Um, yeah, like that. That's how skeleton crew our courts are. So the fact that a judge thinks this is so important and urgent that he is scheduling your trial date a month from now that's quite remarkable to me. It shows the gravity that the court is putting on this and the urgency. The fact that the party lost round one against you I, tells me I wouldn't be betting on their side right now. I mean, the first glance, I know it was only should your case be thrown out. I, I wouldn't bet on the party right now. But here's what I know for an ironclad fact. Your trial will be covered breathlessly 
by every conservative hater, by the CBC, by the Toronto Star, and they'll be cheering for the party, they'll be cheering for you, they'll be cheering for this internal civil war. This is the greatest delight that the CBC will have, Tories in chaos, civil war in the Conservative Party, party blood spills out into the courts. What political party would voluntarily sign up for that humiliation? And by the way, I think they're gonna lose. But imagine saying, hey, let's take a quarter million bucks, spend it on lawyers, and fight a guy who has a history of winning just because we didn't like some email he said about one of our political buddies. This is madness, and May 15th is gonna be a terrible day for, because even, I mean, I'm, I'm, I like you, I'm sympathetic to you, I think you're gonna win and I want you to win, but imagine we'll the damage this is doing to the conservative. If you can't govern yourself, if you can't govern your own party, you can't govern your own house, no one's going to trust you to govern the whole country. Well, we've had a, we've had this, you know, for a few years now in conservative politics in Ontario specifically. We've had this kind of um, discourse or this chatter amongst the establishment. Oh, it's all inside baseball. It's okay if a nomination gets rigged. It's inside baseball. It's okay if we come down heavy-handed on the policy process at convention. It's okay if there's questions on policy or democratic votes or if we silence people. And this is what happens after a few years of dismissing all of the process things and clamping down on free speech as inside baseball. This is what happens. And I was put in a position because Aaron O'Toole claims to be a tough guy. Aaron O'Toole claims to be you know, he's going to hold Justin Trudeau to account. And these are some kind of grandmasters on the McKay and the O'Toole campaign that know how to beat Justin Trudeau. And I send one email and they take it and they broadcast it all over Twitter. They tell the media all about it. They file a complaint to the party. A handful of people on the party side decide, oh, yeah, we're going to make a big stink out of this. And we're going to force Carajalios to go to court uh, to get on the ballot and get the money that he needs, this is, it's no wonder why we lose to the Liberals. It's no wonder. Like, yeah, why you know we what, you're not the first, of course, the, the party kicked out uh, that Quebec MP, and I wasn't very familiar with him, to carry. Not an MP, but yeah, candidate. Yeah. Sorry, thank you, he was a candidate. Um, he expressed some views on, uh, I think it was on gay marriage, that are considered too old-fashioned and too conservative now, and maybe that's right, and maybe uh, that's not what the party wants, but for them to say, oh, we're going to disqualify you uh, because we, some internal group of uh, 11 people on some alphabet soup committee, I mean, I, I, I tell you, uh, if I wasn't so desperate to get rid of Justin Trudeau, I would say the Conservative Party deserves to lose the next election. They're certainly auditioning to be the opposition, not the governing party. Jim, keep us posted. Let us know how it goes on May 15th. Um, I don't know what the courts will be like then, but we'll probably send someone if it's an open courtroom, if it's televised in some way on Skype or something, we'll tune in that way. Okay, well, thanks for having me, Ezra. And uh, we'll see how it all unfolds, unfortunately. Yeah, this is just so crazy. If I was the conservative party, I would just say, let's get out of this May 15th event. Let's reinstate Jim, and let's, if he's, so, if he's so bad, if he's so odious, let the members trounce him in the vote and prove not only that he's wrong, but the party doesn't like him. I mean, why wouldn't you do that? Instead, they're going to... 
shovel of hope. I'd rather be campaigning and yeah. I'd rather be talking about the issues facing Canadians today with uh, COVID and the way we're handling it and the economy on the decline. That's what I'd rather be focusing on. Uh, but they want our party to be focusing on, um, you know, rules and who's allowed to disqualify someone and the heavy hand of whatever individuals think that they are in charge to pick the next leader and the course of the party. And Lisa Raich, she got 3% in the last leadership. Aaron O'Toole got about 10. And they think that the 13% get to govern uh, the other 80 plus percent of the party, 87% of the party. So uh, it's upside down. And uh, for the sake of democracy uh, and for conservatism in this country, uh, I hope it goes uh, the right way. And I, I owe it to the thousands of people and I want to say, Ezra, because a lot of your viewers support me, uh, I want to say thank you to everyone that supported me to raise that $330,000 in a few short weeks. They counted me out. They said there was no way. We'll let this guy run. There's no way he's going to raise the money. O'Toole's team went crazy on Twitter. He's not going to raise it. And thanks to a lot of your viewers, we did it. And they were shocked. Um, but, but thank you. And thanks, Ezra, for covering this because the mainstream media will cover it. Uh, you know, upside down and, and not get the facts straight. So thanks, Ezra. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. I think they're going to cover your May 15th event just because they like well, covering we'll a car crash. And that's what's going to happen that day. All right, Jim, we'll keep us posted. We'll see you on the 15th of May. Uh, hopefully the party will splash some cold water in its face and get out of this suicide run. If they win or you win, it's bad news for the party. This is really really dumb. It reminds me of the Labour Party in the UK and how they've been feasting on themselves to the delight of the Conservatives for two years. Incredible. Take care, Jim. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, Ezra. All right. There you have it, Jim Carahalios. I find this so irritating and so perplexing, and forgive me for talking more than I listen, but uh, this is the wrong path, the wrong path. Stay with us more. Hey, welcome back on my monologue yesterday about China blaming black people for the coronavirus. Chris writes, how long until PM Justin Blackface Trudeau speaks out against the undeniable racism against Africans taking place in China? Well, that's a good point. Where's all the woke Black Lives Matter left? Where's the UN? Where's the squad? Yeah, they don't criticize China, do they? Steve writes, China is responsible for the whole thing, period. They need to compensate us for their ignorance and lies. Well, you're not wrong there. I mean, I, I don't know the actual source of the virus. I think there's a lot of evidence pointing to the Wuhan virology labs. Uh, even if it was an accident, um, it came from there. But I'm not even blaming China for that right now. I don't have enough evidence for that. I'm blaming them for covering up the virus, for lying about the virus, and for hoovering up medical supplies from around the world while they continued to suppress the truth about the virus so they could corner the market. That's what I think they did wrong. I think sanctions or reparations or some sort of legal remedy or political remedy is in order. I can think of no other place that's done as much damage to the world uh, other than perhaps the 9-11 attacks since Pearl Harbor. Joe writes, Trudeau loves China. He was asked, what country do you admire the most? And he said, China. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about it. Um, Trump and Trudeau are both obsessed with China in their own ways. Trump has been talking about China for a decade. Um, he was for getting tough with China on trade, for pulling, pulling factories back to America. He was for challenging 
China's geographical dominance, trying to pull North Korea away. Trump has been at political war with China for four years. You could say he's obsessed with China, but from an America first point of view, Trudeau is obsessed with China too, but from a pro-China point of view, his whole family has been obsessed with China since his old man Pierre went and visited Mao Zedong. The world's largest killer in history, never in the entire history of our planet, has anyone killed more people than Mao Zedong? Not even Adolf Hitler, not even Genghis Khan, not even Tamerlane. Mao Zedong killed more people than anyone in history. And that is the ideology and the party that Justin Trudeau, his brother Sasha, and his father Pierre all admire. All right, that's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, stay safe and keep fighting for freedom. Thank you.